Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Hey, it's good to see you. If we have not met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are starting a brand new series this morning through the book of Exodus. It is going to take us through the summer. I have spent a lot of time these last few weeks studying the book of Exodus, and I am just thrilled to have somebody to talk to about it. So uh, we are going to get into it. Um, the, the, the purpose of the book of Exodus is to tell a story. And it's a pretty simple story. At its core, it has a very simple point. And the point is simply this, that there is one God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who is worthy of our worship. There is one God who is worthy of our worship. And it's interesting to approach Exodus as 21st century Westerners, because you got to understand, this was written into an Egyptian culture that had many different gods and goddesses. So then to say as 21st century Westerners, okay, well, there's only one God. Well, like, yeah, I mean, we're sophisticated modern people. We know that there aren't many different gods and goddesses, don't we? Or do we? I'll tell you something else interesting about Egyptian sort of polytheistic culture, that there were many different gods and goddesses over different realms of life, and these gods and goddesses could do virtually anything except feed themselves, which is a little odd. And no, I am not making that up. So what you would do to worship these various gods and goddesses is you would bring food into the temple that is dedicated to that particular god or goddess and offer it as a sacrifice to feed the gods. Why would you do that? So that the gods would give you favor. Need your crops to grow, need your kids to be healthy, need work to go well. You find your god or goddess, you feed them in hopes that they will bring you favor. Things not going well for you, you better feed your god a little bit more. Things going well for you, better keep feeding your god so that things will go well for you. Very primitive, like we would never do that today. I remember reading an article a few years ago about uh, various people who had really, really large social media followings, like hundreds of thousands or millions of followers. And all of the different unique challenges that come with getting that sort of attention. It's almost like we're not made for that kind of attention. And I thought some of the language that was used was really, really interesting because, see, a lot of these content creators end up having significant mental health challenges that come from the pressure to continue creating content, continue creating content, continue creating content. You want to know the language they used? You've got to keep feeding the beast. Interesting. How many of us have found ourselves, maybe in this season or in a prior season, given over to workaholism where we just feel like we got to keep working, we got to keep working, we got to keep working, we got to keep feeding the beast so that this God might bless us and make things whole for us? Is it, and I could give so many other examples, right? Is it possible we've got just as many gods as the Egyptians do, they just look a little different? And is it possible that we as sophisticated 21st century Westerners need to be reminded just like they did that there is one God who is worthy of our worship? I think we do need that reminder. Now, even if you're not a Christian, you likely at least have a passing familiarity with kind of the big story at the center of the book of Exodus. And that, of course, is the story of Moses, with God's help, going into Egypt and leading Israel out of Egypt and into freedom. Persons of a certain age might associate this story with Charleston Heston, right? Um, Persons of a different age might associate it with the prince of Egypt. There are all sorts of different connections. But this very event is a picture of what God does for us. See, you and I, we are fortunate that we do not live in physical slavery to a cruel Pharaoh. But we can enslave ourselves to Pharaohs of every sort and kind. I think about money. I think about individualism. I think about various addictions. I think about politics, right? Those are just a few that come to mind. And God's invitation to us is through him to be free from anything that would enslave us, not so that we can live without restraint, but rather so that we can worship and serve God more fully. See, I am am grateful to be an American. There is no place else in the world I would rather live. And in this Memorial Day weekend, I'm very top of mind, the, the many, many men and women who have, who have paid the ultimate price to make the life we live here possible, incredibly glad to be an American and thankful to be an American. However, I don't think we were made for the American version of freedom. 
This idea of freedom that says you can just do whatever it is that you want. I do not think we were made for that kind of freedom because that kind of freedom can only lead us to greater enslavement. Why? Don't miss this. If we have unlimited freedom without purpose, we will become enslaved to our strongest desires. Right? If there is unlimited freedom, then our strongest desires win. And I don't know about you, my strongest desires are not my most noble desires. My strongest desires are not my deepest desires. Right? See, real freedom comes when we discipline our desires in service of a greater purpose. And you and I, we are made for the purpose of serving God in every avenue of our lives. Exodus, therefore, is a paradigm of liberation. And perhaps through this series, God might liberate us from the pharaohs that have enslaved us so that we might discover him afresh and worship him and serve him more fully. See, that is real freedom. The story of the Exodus shapes God's interaction with Israel throughout the Old Testament, and he'll repeatedly speak through the prophets, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And this is a story, once again, that teaches us, bottom line, that God and God alone is worthy of our worship. And I think it's fair to ask, as we're starting into this series, Why is it important for us to explore this concept together? I mean, come on, it doesn't really seem all that practical, does it? We could do a series on all different sorts of practical things, and and all that's great. I'm not criticizing. There's a time and a place for all of that. But this might seem, okay, there is only one God who is worthy of my worship. Like, that doesn't feel very practical. But here's why it is eminently practical. Because our ability to grasp that foundational truth, a truth that we are prone to forget as we live in a pagan world that is pulling us a hundred different directions, our ability to grasp that foundational truth, who is my God and who is worthy of my worship, that that is a decision that we make and a question that we answer. And our answer to that question impacts our marriages, it impacts our families, it impacts the way we think about money and about time and about social issues and about justice, and the list goes on. All of those issues I just named, these practical issues that are so important, they are downstream issues that are influenced by the answer, our answer to the question, who is my God? Who will I worship? So together this summer, we're going to discover God through the book of Exodus. And some of you might say like, okay, cool, discover God, that all sounds great. But um, I've already done that. Like, I'm a Christian. I've, I've discovered God. And I'm like, that's great. I hope that's true for you, right? But there's more. There's more. This summer, as we explore this remarkable story, we're going to see how you and I, we are surrounded by opportunities to discover more of who God is, to discover more of who he has made us to be, And to make real life-giving change as a result. Which, I don't know, but like, I'm going to turn 40 this summer, all right? Yes, I know, very impressive. I'm going to turn 40 this summer, and it's just amazing. I've been living life for 40 years, and I feel like, like, forget trying to figure out other people. Like, I'm still figuring out myself. Like, can any of you relate to that, right? There's always opportunities to discover more of God, to discover more of who he has made us to be, and to make real life-giving change as a result. So in the story of the book of Exodus, we're going to see we can discover God in times of tension and uncertainty. I know we don't face any of those, but just imagine what it would be like. We can discover him in times of grief. We can discover him when he's flexing his power and and moving in mighty ways. We can discover him when he seems absent. And it is my hope and it is my prayer that we will be changed this summer and that we will ultimately discover Though we we live in a world that is constantly seeking to enslave us, and we need not fear that, but we need to be clear-eyed about it. But we are not made for slavery to this world. We are made for a God kind of freedom to serve him and worship him more fully. So with that, if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 1 on page 45 on the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. Exodus chapter 1, if you're using a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, it's page 45. Exodus is not one book, rather it is the second in a series of five books. The first five books of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible are known as the Pentateuch. 
So we need to understand right out of the gate that we are stepping into the story midstream. We're joining in for episode two. In fact, this isn't reflected in English translations of the Bible, but the very first character in Hebrew in Exodus chapter one is actually the Hebrew letter vav, which simply means and. So the idea is that Genesis ends and here we go into Exodus. It's a continuation of the story of the book of Genesis. And there are all sorts of interesting connections between the two stories, and we're going to see some of those today. we got to know also that Exodus is telling a historical story about events rooted in history, but it's doing so to make a theological point. In other words, the episodes that are chosen are making a theological point. And again, what is that point? That God and God alone is worthy of our worship. Now, the first two chapters, which is what we're going to look at today, They set up the rest of the book. But I need to warn you, the first two chapters are a little bit dark, right? Like, a lot of times, like, we sing worship songs in church that are inspired by uh, scripture, verses from the Bible, things like that, which I think is awesome. I love getting to do that. There aren't, like, a lot of worship songs written using words from Exodus 1 and 2. Like, that's not really, like, that's not really a thing, okay? It's not exactly a feel-good passage, but there's all sorts of difficulty and tension. But what we're going to find is that in that tension, God is moving. In that tension, God is moving. And what I want to encourage you with today is we're going we're to dissect this story, try to bring it into the 21st century, all that stuff. I want to encourage you with this today. It's to fill in the blank if you're following along on the app or on the handout you, you got when you walked in. There is transformation in the tension. There is transformation in the tension. God brings about transformation through situations of, te- of tension, chaos, and uncertainty. Now, these chapters are divided into five chunks. Yes, that is the technical term, chunks. So we're going to read them one at a time and then go back through them. So Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Ben, or excuse me, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now remember, whenever we read the Bible, we are reading someone else's mail. Right? The Bible was written for us, but not to us, if that makes sense. So as we're trying to get the message of Scripture, we have to try to understand what would have been important to its original hearers, what would have been their mindset. And this paragraph, which admittedly is kind of easy to blow by, you're like, all right, cool, bunch of names, whatever, let's get to the good stuff, would have been very significant to the original readers of this story. Why? Because it connects it back to episode one, to the book of Genesis. Just to give you an incredibly brief overview of what goes on in the last three quarters of the book of Exodus. You likely know this story if you've been around church, but in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I need you to leave this place where you're comfortable, to go out into a new place, and I am going to form a great nation out of you. You're going to be blessed, and through this nation that you form, you are going to bless the world. In fact, all people of the world are going to be blessed through you. Now, that all sounds really great and wonderful, except there was a little problem, that being that Abraham was well into retirement age, and he did not have one son, let alone many sons, which you would think would be necessary to start a new nation. However, in spite of that, and in spite of the fact that Abraham is a knucklehead in many regards... God is faithful, and Abraham gives birth to a son named Isaac. Now, Isaac is a knucklehead in many regards, and yet God is faithful and continues to work through him and and move through him, and he eventually gives birth to some children, including a son named Jacob. Now, stop me if you've heard this before, but Jacob was a knucklehead in many regards, And yet, God is faithful and moves through him, and he gives birth to 12 sons, the youngest of whom is Joseph, which, this is going to really surprise you, he was a knucklehead in many regards, not the least of which was he would have these dreams of, like, his own grandeur, 
And he would share these delusions of grandeur with his older brothers who just loved that so much, they're like, we have got to get rid of Joseph, and they sold him into slavery, right? So Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt, and through a series of miraculous and incredible events, he goes from being a slave to rising up all the way to second in command in Egypt, and God is working the whole time. Side note, I have two sons. This young, my youngest son is named Joey, and he's named after Joseph from the book of Genesis. Uh, why does he have that name? Uh, because when, when my wife was pregnant with, with, with Joey and we were trying to decide on a name, um, we were just praying about it, and we thought, we too hope that someday he irritates his older brother with his own delusions of grandeur. Uh, no, that's, that's not true. One of, the, one of the things I hope my children leave the home with when the time comes is the knowledge that God is always working behind the scenes, even when they can't see it. That's why that is his name, Joseph, to remind him of that very fact. Maybe some of us need to be reminded of that today. So Joseph ends up as this powerful Egyptian official, then famine hits, uh, Jacob's whole household has to come into Egypt looking for food. The last person they expect to find is Joseph, but they find Joseph, and instead of taking out revenge on them, he gets them food, they reunite, they hug and hug and hug and everything, and everyone lives happily ever after. The family comes to live in Egypt, they're saved. Joseph says, listen, you were trying to harm me, but God used what you meant for evil for good. It's a beautiful story, and the book of Genesis ends with Joseph living a long life, and the last verse says he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Turn the page, and we've got Exodus chapter 1. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, it's noteworthy that the first six words of Exodus 1-1 are the exact same words used in Genesis 46, verse 8, when Jacob and his family were coming into Egypt once they discovered that Joseph was there. I mean, that's probably just a coincidence. We don't need to pay attention to that. It's not a coincidence at all, right? It's showing the continuation between these two stories. So it goes on to give us some names, and it says that the whole crew numbered 70 people. Uh, God's promise to Abraham is coming to fruition. Like, they're not a great nation yet, but hey, we're, we're moving in the right direction here. Then it says Joseph died, and he was likely the last of his generation. But it says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. Fruitful and multiply. If you know your Bible, what does that remind you of? Genesis chapter 1, right? What does God say to Adam and Eve after creation? Be fruitful and multiply. This just highlights not only the connection between the two stories, but also this theme of recreation that we're going to find throughout Exodus. God is recreating. See, you got to understand, remember, God is a creator, and likely, if you are a Christian in this place today, like, you know that's true generally, like God creates. But you know that that's true specifically. Yes, God created the world and saw that it was good. God creates blessing out of hopeless situations. God creates hope in our chaos. God creates peace in our suffering. God creates and creates and creates. It is not a one-time thing. And here in Exodus 1, Israel has been fruitful and multiplying. God is creating a new people. So generations pass. Scholars think about 400 years. And Egypt is full of Israelites. God's, God's like, really? Okay, this plan is working. Like Abraham, Sorry, God's not saying that like he's surprised. I'm saying God's plan is working. Abraham has become this great nation living in Israel. Everything is going fantastic until it stops going fantastic. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar 
and in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Oh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. All right. Verse 20. So God... (laughs) God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's wild stuff. It's wild stuff. So verse 8, we meet the vision of the story, or excuse me, the villain of the story. If God is the creator, Pharaoh is the anti-creator. If God is trying to build a new nation, Pharaoh is trying to destroy it. And it says the Pharaoh did not know Joseph, meaning he, he did not honor the arrangements that Joseph had made with Pharaohs of generations past to ensure Israel's protection in the land. And this Pharaoh says, boy, there's an awful lot of Israelites here, here in Egypt, and this could pose a problem. So Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with them, a language that kind of echoes, has some familiarity with what the serpent said in Genesis chapter 3. And he alludes to a concern that if war breaks out, Israel will join their enemies and escape from the land. And this phrase, escape from the land, that's what it literally says in in Hebrew, but it's actually a Hebrew idiom that means more like uh, rise up and take the land. So here, what do we have? We have Pharaoh who is afraid of losing his power to foreign people living in his country. His whole speech serves to show us that xenophobia is nothing new, right? It is nothing new. He's trying to help his people, the Egyptians, be afraid of Israel so that they will be comfortable dehumanizing them. That is what xenophobia does, right? This sort of thing happens in our world all the time still today. Oppressive leaders use the threat of some real, or excuse me, some danger, either real or imagined, to justify human rights abuses. Better be afraid, better be afraid, better be afraid, better be afraid. Pharaoh stokes xenophobic fear among his people, and the human rights abuses are not far behind. So he puts them to work building cities in Pithom and Ramses, and the goal of this abuse of Israel was to kill them off through forced labor, but the plan backfires. Even though they're working and working and working, they just keep multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And yet, look at the language that is used. If you look back at verses 12, 13, 14, slaves, wives bitter, hard labor, ruthless, hard service, all kinds of work, The idea here is to hammer home just how horrific this situation was for Israel. And if it was bad, it only gets worse. Pharaoh tells two midwives to kill any male babies who are born. Why males? Not just everybody. Well, males are the ones who fight the battle. So if you can get rid of the men, you remove the military threat. But it says the midwives named Pua and Shifra feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. So they didn't do it. And you got to understand, they didn't do it for a while. It's at least a few years that passed between verse 16 and verse 18. It's like, like Pharaoh's like looking around, like there are an awful lot of toddler dudes here. Like somebody is not doing what I asked, right? So he goes to the midwives and they say, what are you, why aren't you following my orders? And they make up, they make up an answer. I love this. Oh, you know, uh, Pharaoh, those Hebrew women, boy, they, when they give birth, like, boo, in now, boom, they are done and on their way before we can even get to them. Yeah, Sorry. Okay, this enrages Pharaoh, who then says, fine, just throw them in the river. Why the river? Number one, it's a clean way to do the job. Number two, the river was close by, because everyone lived near the river. He depended on it for water, of course. And then number three, I told you the Egyptian culture had many gods. 
The Nile was one of those gods. So if you throw a child in the river, you ask someone to throw a child in the river, you're asking them to kill a child. But instead, if the God is receiving the child, that, in theory, takes some of the guilt away from the person doing the job. So in Pharaoh's reasoning, they'll be more likely to do what I ask them to do. But let's be very, very clear about what this is. This is barbaric infanticide. It is horrific in every sense of the word. There is nothing good about this. What Pharaoh is asking for, once again, is infanticide. But I want to raise a question. How many babies do you think had their lives saved because of Pua and Shifra? It's impossible to know, of course, but I'm going to guess quite a few, right? These women are heroes. In a culture that valued women only slightly above cattle, these two women come in and foil the evil plans of the most powerful person in all of Egypt. It is the women who refuse to cooperate with oppression, and God uses their acts of quiet faithfulness to save lives. These women are heroes. Heck, they get their name in the book. Pharaoh's just Pharaoh. We're talking about them all these years later. Man, God works in powerful and mysterious ways. One of the things I love, so many stories in, in Scripture is so often, who are the heroes? It's not the powerful. It's not the ones who had all the earthly stuff going for them. It's, it's the humble. It's the quiet ones. It's the powerless ones who God works through to bring about just incredible change. Right here, he works through ordinary, faithful women. That tells us something about God, doesn't it? Doesn't it? He works in unexpected ways. He brings about transformation in the tension, and I think that's really beautiful. Let's keep going. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Bitumen and pitch, excuse me. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman, women walked beside the river. She saw a basket among the reeds and sent her servant, servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw a child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his, sis, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the, child went, or so the, the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So here in chapter 2, we are introduced to Moses, which, spoiler alert, he is going to be a very big deal in this story. And we're told that he had Levite parents, which is hardly an irrelevant detail because later on, Levites would be the ones specially appointed to provide religious and spiritual leadership for Israel. Now, Moses is, Moses is born... And the scripture says that his mother said that he was a fine child, so she kept him for three months, which for me raises the question, what if he'd been ugly? <laughs> what would have happened then, right? But there's something going on here in the narrative. He was a fine child. Okay, keep that. Genesis chapter one, God separates light from darkness, day and night, and he calls it? God separates the sea from the land, and he calls it? God creates the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field and all of that and calls it fine child. God saw that it was good, same word, okay? 
recreation. It's echoes of this language from Genesis chapter 1. God is creating something new. And then this one is really good. So it says it places him in a basket. The basket is lined with tar, and now he sits in the river. This word, this Hebrew word for basket, it is only used in one other story in the entire Bible. Surprise, book of Genesis. And it's used very, very prominently. What is a story in the book of Genesis where somebody is saved from the dangers of water from a ark? Same word. Only two places where it's used in the entire Bible. What's going on here? Waters of destruction were coming upon the earth. God saves Noah through an ark, and from Noah he launches a new people. Pharaoh had appointed that these waters of the Nile would be for the destruction of Israel. What does God do? He saves Noah in a basket, or excuse me, saves Moses in a basket, and what happens? He uses Moses to form a new people. God is on the move. Things are happening. These details of Moses' birth, they are not simply background bits of information. This, they are incredible pieces of symbolism that both inform what God is doing and preview what is to come. Another bit of symbolism, as God so often does, he uses the treachery of one person to actually move his plan of redemption forward. The wickedness of Pharaoh causes Moses' parents to make the impossibly difficult decision to place him in in a basket and store him in the river. But what happens? (laughs) None other than the daughter of Pharaoh finds him. And once again, look at the language. She comes down to the water. She hears the cry of the child. She takes pity on the child and works for his rescue. Some say that there are echoes here that this woman's actions toward Moses parallel God's actions towards Israel. But here's the point. Remember, God is working. God is working. God is working. Surely he seemed distant for the peop- to the people of Israel at that time, but he's working. He's setting things up. He's orchestrating things. Is it possible he's doing that in your life? If he seems distant right now, is it possible that he's doing that in our church? Is it possible he's doing that in our county, in our state, in our nation, in our world? Is it possible even in moments where he seems distant that he's moving, that he's orchestrating things, that he's setting things up? I think we have a lot of scriptural precedent to suggest that is exactly how God works. And in another beautiful twist of irony... (laughs) It's the daughter, Pharaoh's own household. It's his daughter who rescues the child that leads to his undoing. And in a twist that just must have been too much for Moses' mother, the child gets returned to her. She gets to nurse her own child and get paid for it. (laughs) God is working, (laughs) y'all. But let's not lose sight of the fact that this is still a very rough situation for Israel. There's not a whole lot of evidence, thankfully, to suggest that the whole throw kids in the river scheme was widely obeyed, thankfully, like I said, but this was still a devastating time for Israel. The adults are still out working in the fields, building cities, being tortured through hard labor. And then at some unspecified time, it says Moses is returned to Pharaoh's daughter, who names him Moses, which sounds similar to the Hebrew word for to draw out. And after this, the narrative fast forwards about 35 years, and we have our next chunk of scripture here, starting in verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home, when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? 
They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So back to verse 11. We see Moses' first attempt to deliver his people. This isn't, remember, there is a broader point being made in this story. This isn't just a random episode in his life. He's trying to deliver his people from oppression, but he's operating alone, he's operating in secret, he's relying on his own strength and wisdom, and it does not go well, right? But a couple things to notice here. If you have your Bible open, look back at verse 11, and notice how it twice makes the point that Moses saw the Hebrew, the Israelite person, and identified that person as one of his people. Remember, Moses had been living in Pharaoh's household for 35-ish years. He was baked in Egyptian culture. He had enjoyed all the perks that come from living in Pharaoh's household. He very, very easily could have identified as an Egyptian and enjoyed all of the social perks that come with that. Just going, well, you know, hey, I'm sorry that this is happening, but I got mine. I'm good. I'm going to stay close to the people in power. Now listen, Moses, like everyone else in the Bible except Jesus, is a morally complicated character. It's like, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Well, kind of like all of us, a little bit of both, right? But his continued identification with Israel is one thing that he got right. He could have ignored his people and just looked out for himself, but he remembered who he was. Listen to how the New Testament author of the book of Hebrews describes him in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23. I love this passage. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let me put that in my own words. Moses chose to live in the tension of faithfulness rather than seek the easy way out. And that's where transformation happens. Right? Let me put an even finer point on this. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of things in this world, that let's just be real honest about this, that become a lot easier if you and I are willing to be immoral or treat people badly or only look out for ourselves, right? It's easier to gain and keep hold of power. It's easier to make money. It's easier to have ecstatic and exciting experiences. It's easy to satisfy your strongest desires. It's easy to experience the pleasure of indulgence of virtually any sort and kind. It's easy, to borrow our language from earlier, to keep feeding the beast. And frankly, we live in a culture that is swimming with examples of people who are willing to make that trade. But what is that? It is the fleeting pleasure of sin. It is a promise of salvation that cannot deliver. And why does God point us in a different direction? Because you and I know this from living in the real world. Indulging in the fleeting pleasure of sin rarely leads to more pleasure. Isn't that true? Our fleeting pleasures get a hold of us and they become masters or some might even say pharaohs over us, don't they? So instead, God says, walk the difficult walk of walking with me in the tension. Choose faithfulness when it doesn't make sense. Understand there is a greater reward out there. Because see, when we do that, when we wrestle with God in our difficulties and stress, when we can be honest with each other about like, man, I'm just trying to figure out what God is doing here. It is awfully hard for me to see. When we're honest about our doubts, but we say, God, I want to understand what you're doing and I just can't. When we regard our faithfulness to him as greater then whatever indulgence would sort of release that tension, that is where transformation happens. That is where we begin to experience the greater reward that makes the fleeting pleasure of sin look cheap and silly by comparison. I'm telling you, there is transformation in the tension, right? 
But I also want to make sure we're clear that, again, Moses isn't exactly a saint. Like, he got this one right, but he's not a saint. The text tells us he kills a guy and then tries to cover it up. That, if you're taking notes, is a no-no, right? Then he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. He tries to get involved, and the one says to the other, like, hey, you're going to do us like you did the guy, or do me like you did the guy from Egypt? And Moses goes, oh, shoot. My little secret is known. Sure enough, Pharaoh now knows, and he's got to get out, right? He's a wanted man, and it'll be sure death if he's caught. So now he's a fugitive, ejected from the land he's known his whole life and seemingly alone. He meets a priest of Midian and his seven daughters. He helps water their animals in an act reminiscent of how uh, Isaac and Jacob met their wives in the book of Genesis. I I guess that was just how you met a wife back then. He ends up marrying... He, take notes, the young adult pastor says. <laughs> he ends up marrying one of the daughters, and they have a child named Gershom, which is essentially a compound word in Hebrew that means an immigrant there or a sojourner there. Even the name of the child is a symbol of Moses' banishment. See, this is a time of profound failure for him. He failed to deliver his people with the impulsive murder of an Egyptian. He's failed as a citizen of Egypt. He is unwelcome among his own people. He is wanted by the most powerful man in Egypt, and he's now living among people who are not his own in an obscure place. This hardly seems like the setup to a great rescue story, right? But but here's the truth. If we can, again, bring this into the 21st century here. Here's the truth. The Moses of Exodus chapter 2 must precede the Moses that leads Israel out of slavery. The the Moses of of Exodus chapter 2 must precede the Moses who leads them out of slavery. Why? Moses is in a pit right now. It is sad. It is depressing. There is seemingly no hope that things are ever going to get better. Have you been there? And Moses is going to stay there for a really long time. This isn't like, well, Moses went to counseling for eight weeks and now he's all better. No, no. This lasts for decades, right? His suffering did not make him perfect, but it shaped him into a man who was fit to lead, right? See, what we have to understand is that when we are in the pit, we can grow bitter or we can start looking for gold, Right? Looking for gold does not mean that being in the pit is not terrible. Don't hear me saying that. But what I'm saying is God meets us in the pit. God meets us in the tension. And he can transform us. Moses had to be broken down before he could be built back up. And perhaps that is true for you and for me. I am someone who, I believe this to the core of my being, that for a person to assume great leadership, they have to be broken down first or they're going to hurt people. Right? Look at even Jesus. He, didn't, he was perfect. He didn't need all of this. And yet, he was rejected and suffered before the glory of resurrection. In the tension of hardship and even hopelessness, God is at work. I'm telling you, the pit is a terrible place to be, but there's gold there. God meets us there. He transforms us there. There's a pastor in Australia whose podcast I like to listen to, and his name is Mark Sayers. <clears throat> and he likes to say that crisis precedes renewal. Crisis precedes renewal. We can let crisis just be terrible and we don't change and we don't learn and we don't grow or we can recognize crisis precedes renewal. God is working in the tension. God meets us in the tension and he will bring about our transformation. The choice is ours. What's our perspective going to be? But now there is an important caveat to that. So so don't miss this, that we misunderstand the way that God works in our suffering If we believe that the whole point of our earthly suffering is to lead to some shining moment where everything makes sense and all of the past hurt we went through just, oh, I see so clearly why, and everything is happy, and the music starts to play, and the credit starts to roll, and we live happily ever after. That's not the point. Because let me ask you this. When did that happen for Moses? It didn't. He has this amazing rescue. God uses him to lead the people out of slavery into the wilderness, and then what? He wanders around the desert with whiny church people for 40 years. (laughs) 
Listen, this dude did some incredible things in his life with God's help, but his life was up and down and up and down and up and down, and it was a struggle until he died. So the idea that there's just gonna be this one like glorious moment in our lives where everything makes sense and we've accomplished our purpose and oh, there's just complete fulfillment. That's great if you're writing scripts in Hollywood, but it's not a kingdom reality. And see, we set ourselves up for disappointment if we don't realize this. But the beautiful truth is that God is continuing to work. Again, the whole, there's one magical moment in our future on this earth. See, that's a myth. But what is not a myth is that God uses anything and everything to mold us into the image of his son. And we can be confident that God will use anything and everything in our lives to transform us in ways that will prepare us for the challenges to come. And that is good news. We can be transformed in the tension, right? Let's wrap this up with our last section. It's only three verses. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt and the people of Israel, excuse me, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So Pharaoh dies, raising the possibility that Moses could return to Egypt is no longer a fugitive. But the transfer of power did very little to make things better for Israel. They continued to suffer under an abusive regime and they groaned and they cried out just as Abel's blood cried out from the ground in Genesis chapter four. So the cries of Israel come up from the land of Egypt to God's ear. And it says that God hears them and it's not as though God sometimes doesn't hear but rather the, the word has this connotation of God took heed of their prayers and prepared to respond. And it says God remembered his covenant. And that doesn't mean that God is forgetful. God, remember, you made a promise. No. It's not that God forgot. But it's an indication that God is about to act in a manner that reflects his promise to Abraham and his descendants, specifically to make them a great nation and give them a land. And to say that he saw is not to say that he was facing the other direction and turned around and was like, oh my gosh, what's happening, right? Rather, the word, it's a really, really beautiful word, and it carries this connotation to, to see is to, to move toward with compassion and sympathy, right? And then that final word is perhaps the most important word of the whole paragraph for us. God knew. God knew. Is there suffering? Yes. Why is there so much of it? I don't know. I don't understand it. I'm not gonna stand up here and try to give you an easy answer. I don't know. It is above my pay grade. Why is there so much suffering? But does it go unnoticed? No, it does not. It is noticed by a loving, omnipotent God of the universe. And we can know that while suffering is significant, very significant, in fact, suffering has a beginning. Some of us need to hear this today. Suffering has a beginning and it has an end end. The middle is hard, but suffering has an end. And it is watched over by a sovereign God whose work cannot and will not be stopped by the act of any human anywhere. And God can and will turn suffering around and use it as part of his plan to transform us and use it as part of his plan to draw people to himself, to free them from feeding the beast, to free them from their false worship so that they might have the, the freedom to serve him and worship him more fully. That's what God does. Listen, yeah, well, we, can, we can clap for that and praise God for that. Listen, I, I wish there was a way to avoid tension. Like, I wish I could stand up here and tell you guys, okay, if you read the Bible this much, if you pray this much, and then you pray these prayers, and you come to church this often, and give this much money, and do all this stuff, then what's going to happen is God will reward you with a life that is free from tension and suffering. I would love to be able to tell you that, but of course I can't, because it's not true. The Bible does not teach that. I also wish it was possible to like grow and develop from like a state of ease and comfort, right? 
Like, I wish I could just say to you, like, here, like, if you eat this ice cream and watch these Netflix sitcoms, you will become a strong and resilient person who's able to represent Christ in the world and feel his joy and peace. Like, that's actually how, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. But what is true, that is false, but what is true is probably better for us in the long run. And that is that transformation happens in the tension. There is purpose for us in the tension. So so can we, as we launch into this study together, as we look at our lives and we see the tension and as we see the pain, as we look out into the world and we see the tension and see the pain, can we resist, oh gosh, we need God's help for this, can we resist the urge to become bitter and complacent and disengaged and can we resist the urge to give up and instead can we open ourselves up to discover a God who meets us and transforms us and is with us in the tension because I'm telling you God is working and there is always more to discover amen amen so with these first two chapters the setup is complete God sees God knows, <laughs> and it's time for him to move. It's going to be a great series, y'all. Don't miss next week when we discover more of him as we look at one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. Can I have the prayer team come on up? I'm going to close this in prayer, and after I get done praying, there, there are some of you today, you're walking in here going, man, I, I maybe hadn't thought of this before, but what I'm dealing with in my life feels like a kind of slavery, and I need God to free me from it. Or man, there are things in my life that have taken the place, almost like God-like status for me. That feeding the beast thing is real, and I need God's freedom. If that's you, come on up and be prayed for. Our our prayer team's hoping they'll get to pray for you today. And if you're carrying anything else, just man, don't leave here without being prayed for. Again, we want to be able to, to do that for you. So let me just pray a blessing over all of us, and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for your word that it is inspired by you, and it is profitable for us. We thank you for an ancient story that teaches an eternal truth, and that is that you, Yahweh, the God of Israel, you are the one true God and is the only God worthy of our worship. I pray for all of us that as we engage with this series through the summer, as we engage with these resources we've created midweek, as we just engage with this incredible piece of scripture you've given us, that we would discover more of you. That we would discover you are a God who meets us in the tension. You are a God who transforms us. You are a God who is on the move. And God, I pray that you would use our study to free us from the pharaohs that we have enslaved ourselves to, to free us from the false gods that we have given our worship to, so that we might experience the true freedom that comes from knowing you, serving you, worshiping you more fully. So God, I pray just a blessing over my friends here today. May we know in this moment and in every moment to come this week that there is a God in heaven who is good and mighty and powerful and wonderful and that he is the only God worthy of worship and that you are with us every step of the way. We thank you that all of that is true. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen.